So much I want to say after we sing those songs. So much truth that circles in my head that I want to share with you. But let me just uh, start as usual. Take your Bibles. Take your Bibles. It would benefit us much more not to hear my musings on the songs we sing, but instead to go right to God's Word in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, if you're using a chairback Bible or an ESV, you're going to find it on page 981, 981. The glorious thing about Scripture is we don't really have to uh, step out from our study that we've been going through because it is all centered on Christ and the cross and the resurrection, but uniquely today we see the resurrection. And it just so happens in God's divine providence to fall this week. This Sunday, like every other Sunday, we come together to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. We do these very same things each week. But we focus specifically on it today because this is the calendar day that Jesus defeated death and rose from the grave. It is true. We get an example here today from the Apostle Paul as to how we are to live in light of this truth, in light of this fact. As we consider this, it should cause us to search our own hearts and our own minds to see if this is actually a reality for us. Do we truly believe? Do we truly believe? Because if we do, it will affect everything. I love the illustration that's given. Let's say I was coming here this morning and, uh, and I, came in dis- uh, I came in late and I came up to the pulpit and I said, everybody, I'm sorry I'm late. You won't believe what happened to me. Well, I was on my way down the hill there and, and, and the tire that was on our van just rolled off. I had to go get it and I had to put it on. And I'm, you know, screwing those lug nuts in and then I step out into the street and a Mack truck hit me 60 miles an hour, well, uh, 60 kilometers per hour um, and, and knocked me down the road. But, but I'm here and everything's good. And you look at me and I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm not looking too dapper this morning, but you would say, you are a liar. Never happened to you. You didn't get hit by a Mack truck. Because if you did, if you had experienced something that great in magnitude, you would be different. You'd be disheveled. You'd probably have broken bones. We, might not, we probably wouldn't even see you. You'd be in the hospital because you had... Um, you had taken the force of something that great, there's going to be change. If you have said you've had experience with the one true God, the one who breathes out stars, you will be different. And we will see it in your actions. When you encounter a holy God, your desires are now to be holy. I want to be like him. I've met him and I've been impacted by him and I'm never going to be the same because this isn't just some Mack truck on the road. This is a God. The God who thought thoughts before anything had ever come into existence. The one who now controls this planet, which is perfectly tilted on an axis, 93 million miles from a star. The only way that it can actually have an ecosystem 
that's able to sustain life. And bef- on and on. And he sends his only son. He clothes himself in flesh, lives a perfect life, dies a death in our place that we might know him. And we trifle. We trifle with so many lesser things. We think that in our capacity, we can know him. In our finite minds, we can know him. We can't know him. We can't work hard enough to be good enough to be acceptable to him. Paul has been talking about that. Paul has been talking about that in his own experience in Philippians chapter 3. He's explained we need to be careful of the danger of putting any confidence in our flesh, putting confidence in our own actions and our own work before God. He, he explained, and we looked at it just last week, he put a lot of stock in perceived, inherited, and earned benefits before the Lord. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was an Israelite. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I had checked all the boxes. I had done all the right things. And as to righteousness, perceived righteousness, blameless before God. So what's the problem, Paul? Problem is it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. In verse 4 of chapter 3, he starts listing these things that he thought brought him profit. This was his profit column, profit and loss. And then in verse 7, he explains, everything I once listed in that gain column, that profit column, I've moved over to the loss column because I realize it's a loss. It's all a wash. doesn't matter what it is, pedigree or practice, I count it all loss for the most important thing, knowing Christ Jesus. It's only in that relationship to him that I have any confidence before the Lord. It's the only way I'm going to have any confidence before the Lord. If we try to place confidence in the flesh, and this legalistic mindset that we can somehow do good enough, then we're going to be like those that Jesus said stood before the Lord in that day and said, Lord, Lord. They thought they knew him. How did they think they knew him? By doing stuff. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do these things? Didn't we do all these things for you? And he will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. See, there was no real heart change. Because if there was heart change, there would have been not just works to earn merit. It would have been works in response to the grace and the mercy shown. And we can't get those mixed up. If not, we're going to end up there. And I don't want us to. Paul wanted desperately to know Christ. He says, it's my only hope. It's all the hope I have. It's the only confidence I have before a holy God is that a holy God represents me in Christ. And so the next few verses, Paul continues through this. And he presses further in his desire. He says, look, I want to know Christ more. 
And I hope that as we read this, that same desire is kindled within us too. To, to let all of our works of perceived righteousness, our inherited benefits, let them pass aside. That we might consider them as Paul does. Just to know Christ and to know him more. Let's pray and then we'll look at the text together. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you. You are our only hope. We thank you for your word, that you would give us your word. Father, we are an undeserving people. We are an unworthy people, and you have provided, and you provided in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you would come to this place, that you would take on flesh, being made like us in every way, yet without sin, and that because of that, when we're tempted, you're able to help us when we're tempted. Oh, thank you that you are a great and merciful high priest who is acquainted with our sorrows and our grief. Father, all around this room this morning, we need you. You know every heart. I ask that you would speak, that you would speak to us through your word, and that we might hear and say yes and amen and walk in righteousness, the righteousness you give. Father, I thank you that you can take a religious people and save them. I thank you that you can take a rebellious people and save them. Oh, God, we praise you that you are a God of salvation, and we thank you that you've defeated death. Help us to experience the power of your resurrection even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. No longer having confidence in himself, in his own flesh, Paul explains what complete confidence in Christ actually looks like. So I'm going to give us a little bit of a road map. If you take notes, maybe you could just jot these down. These are sort of the points. I wouldn't be a good Baptist preacher if I didn't have three of them, right? So here's the first one. He completely renounces his flesh in verse 8. Verse 8 is about completely renouncing his flesh. All those things that he had confidence in, he says, done with those. I didn't really have didn't have a, a, a steady anchor, didn't have a firm foundation. It was very shaky. And so he says, I renounce that. Renounces his flesh in verse 8. Verse 9, he trusts in Christ's righteousness by faith. Verse 9, he says, okay, I've renounced my own. Now I have to have Christ's righteousness by faith. So he trusts in Christ's righteousness by faith. And in verses 10 and 11, he desires to experience the power of the resurrection. He says, after it's all been said, I've laid aside all of, my, <laughs> all of my perceived earnings. I've gained Christ, and now I want to live in that. I want to experience that resurrection in a way that I never have. Up to this point, even, he desires to experience the power of the resurrection. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8, right here in the middle of Page 981 on the right side there, it says, Indeed, indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Verse 8 is a very similar statement to the one we saw last week, verse 7, but the tense is different. Last week he says, I counted, I counted. Now he counts. Now that might seem like semantics. You might be saying, wow, you're really trying to reach here, aren't you? But no. See, we have to understand that, that doing this, doing this 
reckoning. It's a present tense verb. It's a present tense verb. We cannot say that we trusted Christ. Our trust in Christ is present tense trust. Trusting. We, we must presently and constantly be doing that. We can't say, you know, I at one time renounced all of my works and good deeds and fell completely on Christ and in Christ alone once. No. He's saying, I did it and I continue to do it. I did it and I continue to do it. When Christ says repent, he means that the entire life of a believer be one of repentance. There is a constant uh, uh, walking with him, living with him. And so some of you in this room, like I, you know, you may look at your life and go, you know, I, I don't have a date, a set date in time. I can't look back and go, that's when I made a decision. And so to you, I would say, that's okay. Me too. But that puts onus on us now to have to do the daily soul-level work of going, am I trusting in Christ right now? Am I receiving and resting in Christ alone for salvation right now? And it's a benefit to us in some ways. And so maybe you do, you point back, and that's okay. But here's what I would say. Um, point back, but point present as well. I trusted, I'm trusting. I trusted, I'm trusting. It's all about this present tense as well. For someone who banked, who once banked his entire life on being good enough to find favor with God, and he had counted all that stuff as gain, what causes him to count all of it as loss now? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The worth. There was something wor uh, that, that was of greater value than what he was able to give. Surpassing worth. Knowing Christ is better than adhering to a lifeless religion that makes empty promises. Do this and live. But instead, it's trust Christ and live. It's not based on my own ability. I don't have to keep myself Yes, we're encouraged, keep yourself in the love of God. But we know that all those that are his, he will not lose a single one, and he will raise them up on the last day. We can trust, we can trust him, that he who began a good work in us, he will see it to completion as well, as we saw in chapter 1. Henry Ironside remarked this, he said, this is not, in Paul's life, this is not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules, and regulations making way for a better one. He had come in contact with a divine person, the one crucified but now glorified, the Christ of God. He had been won by that person forever, and for his sake he counted all else but loss. Christ in Christ alone meets every need of the soul his work has satisfied God, and it satisfies the one who trusts in him. Paul, the Holy Spirit through him, wants us so to understand this, that he starts to use language that we would think is not really church language. He does. It's intensely descriptive in the next clause Look at the next clause. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as 
Rubbish. Rubbish. A good old, a good old timer word, I think. Ah, rubbish. <laughs> what is it, though? What does it mean? Scubalon. It's a vulgar word in the original language. Manure. Excrement. He's saying, looking back on what I once thought I earned before God, I realize it's all excrement. Prophet Jeremiah would say it is menstrual rags before a holy God. God uses intense language that we might know exactly how he feels about sin and thinking that we have any righteousness before him on our own. Paul does the same. It's like taking scubalon, manure, and presenting it before the Lord and saying, that's good, right? But we do it, and we think it's okay until Christ gets a hold of us. <laughs> and we see, how on earth could I possibly be bringing this when I, I've got access to this? A treasure in a field that causes me to sell everything I own just to buy the treasure that's in the field. That I might experience it and that it might bring me pleasure and God pleasure and, and, and bring me into his presence. In light of this, in verse 9, we see he trusts Christ's righteousness by faith. Verse 9, he trusts Christ's righteousness by faith. In order that I might gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Boyce considers verse 9 a one-verse summary of the book of Romans, for it deals with the heart of salvation in a capsule form. thought that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, wow. This, this has a lot to do with the themes that undergird what Paul talks about in Romans. It's a summary of the central message of the gospel right here. It verifies there's two kinds of righteousness. Man's righteousness and a righteousness that comes from God. And then the Holy Spirit makes clear through Paul, the only righteousness that satisfies God is the one that comes through him and through faith in Christ. There is no other. That's the reason why in Romans 3, he would give the summation of why we see the, the, the anger of God towards the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And then in chapter 3, you would say, there is none good. No, not one. He'd repeat it twice. And if there's no one good enough to be made right with God, how on earth are we to be made right with him? But God, <laughs> he sent an alien righteousness, Paul tells us in Romans, outside of ourselves, we couldn't do it, and so he provided. Because every good and perfect thing comes from the Father of lights. With him, there is no shadow due to change. And so he provides exactly what we need in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. He got it. He thought he could do it, but he couldn't do it. Man is not good. 
As a religious man, he once wanted people to see him as righteous. But now he says, if anybody looks on me, I want to be found in Christ. I want people to see Christ, and I want to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own. Don't look at me anymore. This isn't about me. All that stuff, I counted as loss. That I might gain Christ and be found in him. And with that being true, he wanted that overall theme to be the theme of his life. Not in me, but all in Christ. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We talked about that quite a bit last week. He had a righteousness, of course, one that came from the law. But before God, a righteousness of the law is of no credit. It's of no credit. It's like using the wrong currency. God is looking to justify by faith. And so if we come thinking we're going to be justified by something else, we're using the wrong currency. It's like taking arcade tokens, polishing them up really good and trying to pass them off as real coins, as a loony. It's not going to work. They're going to still be unacceptable no matter how much work you put into them to make them look good. As with man's goodness, we can try to polish it up, but we will not be acceptable to God on our own terms. And that's the tough thing, because many of us really believe that we can. Oh, yeah, we see it. Oh, we think we can. We think we can. We think we can, but this is not the little engine that could. This is real life, and this is God's truth. And he's spoken. The only one that could was Christ. And he gives us opportunity for safe passage through Christ. It reminds me of, of Europeans back in the 16, well, 1500s actually. 1500s were trying to find a way, a passage to India to get all those nice spices where they curried their food in and they take it back to India, and so a few guys tried to go around uh, the continent of Africa to get over to India, but many of them had to turn back at South Africa because there was a cape there, two oceans met, storms would blossom, and they wouldn't be able to get through. It was called the Cape of Storms, and then there was a Portuguese man named Vasco da Gama. He made it through, and then he made, he made it through. He went over got a boatload of stuff, and then he brought it back. And as they were coming back through what was known as the Cape of Storms, he renamed it. He renamed it the Cape of Good Hope. And death for us is a Cape of Storms. But Christ has gone through, passed through, and come back for us. And death is a good hope that we have in Christ. And Paul says, I want to experience that. I want to experience that every day of my life. And it's not based on me because I didn't go through and come back. Christ went through and came back. So it does not depend on man who works or wills, but on the grace of God and God alone. Paul realizes only God can do it. Only God can give him a righteousness through faith. So we have to look at these terms for just a moment before we're done. Righteousness. Righteousness is needed to be justified before the, 
judge of all. It's a legal term. It's a forensic declaration of not guilty. How can a person that conceived in sin and steals God's heir and then when, when possible to make a moral action, sins, and then at all time does not do what God has required in being perfect, how can someone ever stand before a holy God and think that they will be justified before him? You can't. And the law exposes that. The law is what is given to expose that. It's actually the tutor that leads us to Christ and our need for Christ. To, we have to have a righteousness outside of ourselves. And that's what God provided in Christ. He lived a perfect life. And then he died a death to avert God's wrath towards our sin and towards our unrighteousness. And he placed it squarely upon Christ. This accomplishment of Christ alone is held out for us and we may obtain it by faith. By faith. Well, what is faith? Westminster Confession of Faith is what the New City Catechism is based upon when it asks, what is faith? It is absolutely an evangelical grace. It is necessarily granted and wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. But what is faith? What is faith in Jesus? What is faith in Jesus Christ? It's receiving and resting on Him alone for salvation that He has offered to us in the gospel. So, it's receiving and resting. Receiving. A rebellious heart does not receive. A rebellious heart is a stony heart. And so what I would encourage you to do is plow up the stony ground of your heart. Trust that the Holy Spirit is working within. And receive the good word. Like the sower that goes out and sows a seed that he might find fertile ground. Oh, that he might find fertile ground in your hearts. Resting. A heart that is working to have confidence in its own merit is not resting, it's working. But we're not to work, we're to rest. Rest in Christ alone. But we rest because our Lord has done everything necessary to be acceptable before God. We just receive and rest in Christ alone for salvation, on His merit alone that He has offered to us. We're not the source. He's offered it to us because He's the source in the gospel. The offer is the gospel, the good news, and that reminds us that we live the bad news, that by nature, by nature of our actions and our attitudes, we stand condemned before a holy God. But the good news is that there's a way through, through Jesus Christ and his perfect life lived for us and his death died for us. It provides a way of eternal salvation. It's not based on us. That somehow we're going to tip that scale in the end. We can't tip that scale because we have no glory. We've fallen short of the glory. We don't obtain it. We have nothing to, to place there besides dirty rags of unrighteousness, which don't even make the scale budge because the currency is not accepted. 
It's like putting one of those arcade tokens into a Coke machine and it doing nothing. Just saying, what was that? So I invite you today to exercise faith in Christ. How can we be saved from the righteous judgment of God? The righteous judgment, a God who is going to be just in all of his ways, the just and the justifier, must judge rightly. And if you are guilty, he must declare it. He must declare it. Just because of his mercy doesn't mean that it trumps his righteousness. No, he's merciful and he's right. He's loving and he's good. And so there has to be payment. There has to be payment. And and you will either pay it or Christ has paid it for you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. How can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary. We know that word, substitute. He has substituted on behalf of us, atoning God's wrath diverted and our sins taken away. Substitutionary atoning death on the cross. His sacrifice has been validated through one of the most attested to events in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We got all the evidence that we could possibly need in the eyewitness accounts that Christ was dead and he's alive again. Paul talks about it and goes to great length to talk about it. And, and because of that, because he is alive, because he's been raised, because up from the grave he arose, if it were not so, we of all people should be pitied and we waste our time here today. Our activity is in vain. But it's not in vain. Because he is alive. And Paul said, I want to experience that every single day. I want to experience the power that raised Christ from the dead every single day. When I feel like I can't get up out of bed in the morning, when I feel like the walking dead, I want to experience it. Because I need that power Truth compels Paul in verses 10 and 11 to desire to experience the power of the resurrection. And that's our last point. Look at verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, this, this knowing is not some existential knowledge it means experience, that I might know him and it have an effect on me that I might have right relationship with God and Christ. And it's only made possible, only made possible because of the power of the resurrection. It's incredible to think. It's incredible to think about when this was written. This was likely around 30 years after the Damascus Road experience when Christ had come to Paul and Paul had that amazing experience on the road. Here we are 30 years down the road and Paul's not saying, I've made it. In fact, in the next few verses, he's saying exactly the opposite of that. He's saying, not that somehow I've made it or that I'm perfect. 
He's saying, no, I am far from. That's why I said I want to continually experience the power of the resurrection in my life. And I want to know Christ more. So what, whatever age you are today, let that be your desire. Because Christ, uh, Paul didn't say it's okay to coast after you come to a certain point in your life. Or after you've experienced so much of, of God, you don't have any more experience of Him. He says, no, I want to know Him. I want to know Him even greater, in a greater sense, than I knew Him when I first met Him on the road to Damascus. Or when I was being stoned for His namesake. Or when I was first given these shackles for preaching His gospel. I want to know Him more. From the deepest moments of sorrow to the greatest joys of of jubilation I want to know Christ I want to experience him more and more and more the desire of the heart is not just to think I'm okay but instead to to know Jesus more do you have that desire do you have that desire within you to know him to know this person who is alive oh that I might be able to look back after um 30 years of marriage and go, I love you and I want to know you more. But that I might look at my life in Christ and say, oh, how you've been so faithful. More faithful than anyone. And I want to know you more, Lord Jesus. He could live according to his natural state and thought, you know, it's okay. It's okay to settle for a mundane existence, but he didn't want to settle He didn't want to settle. He longed to experience the power of God manifest in the resurrection of Christ, a power that would enable him daily to resist temptation, to meet his trials and challenges with confidence that he could overcome because Christ had overcome. He had overcome the grave. The language language here is literally the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the power of the resurrection working in us to sanctify us, to make us look more like Christ. When you grasp who you are on the outside, when you grasp who you are outside of that power, you start to get it and realize why it is so needed for your full salvation from start to finish. I need this power of the resurrection daily in my life. The only power that's going to change my mind, will, and emotions away from sin, the thing I've loved, and towards God is the power of the resurrection. And and unless that is lived out in me, I'm going to continue to dwell in death. Paul notes this would have been the experience but he wants to experience Christ more and he wants to do, do, do so through sharing in his sufferings. Interesting. Interesting way of saying this is what he wanted to do to know him more. Becoming like him in his death. But the more his life was affected by the knowledge of Jesus, the more he was persecuted. And we cannot believe that we're going to get out of this thing as if we're going to have some um, experience outside of that. We're not. Chapter 1, verse 27, he said, It is granted unto you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Plain and simple. 2 Timothy 3, 12, 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and you will if you've been impacted by the Holy Spirit, will be persecuted. Not maybe. Will be. Jesus reminds his disciples in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. But take heart, do not fear, I have overcome the world. Becoming like him in his death. It's the same terminology we saw in Philippians chapter 2 with this kenosis. um, The outward expression of an inward reality. The outward expression of an inward reality. Becoming like him in his death. We have died to self when we've accepted Christ. Galatians 2.20 is the reality of every believer. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live. Paul finishes in verse 11 here saying, by any means necessary, by any means possible, I might attain resurrection from the dead. This is not a a statement where we see Paul start to doubt and waver in his faith. He's not doubting the resurrection. He's not doubting his salvation. But what he's saying is, I want to be so like Christ that I would be mistaken for a resurrected man at present. It's really what he's getting at. It's quite the attitude to have. But the Greek helps us. There's a subtle difference here in the, in the word for resurrection from verse 10 to verse 11. In verse 11, it's the only place we find it in Scripture, and, and Paul has added the preposition ek to it, which means out of. And so the word for resurrection in verse 11 means, okay, in, in, in the original language, anastasis just means to be raised, to stand up. And so Paul is saying, I want to so be alive in Christ that I am standing up outwardly. I am standing up outwardly and outstandingly. That there would be no chance in confusing me for someone who was not alive in Christ. That I would appear as, I would be so different, I would appear as the living among the dead. Because that's who I am. And it's just another affirmation as well of the resurrection and of future resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits from among the grave. That's what Paul tells the Colossians. First fruit from among the grave. He came out first. And what does a first fruit show? That there will be a bountiful harvest to come. There will be a bountiful harvest. Oh, that we might be that harvest. To step away from the grave, glorified in Christ. And allow our faith to become sight. And that we might experience it, not just then, but this afternoon. And tomorrow when we wake up. And Wednesday when we feel like, I can't go see that person at work. I'm going to flip out. No. Christ's power of the resurrection is going to help you. Or on Thursday night when you say, I cannot discipline my children anymore. They're driving me crazy. Christ's power in you. 
Christ's power in you. Stop thinking you are enough. You're not enough. That's why you need Christ. That's why you need Christ. Bottom line. One day, you and I will stand in God's presence. And we will be clothed. And we'll either be in our so-called righteousness, these dirty rags of our own making, not dressed for this banquet feast, or in the glorious righteousness of Christ. And those are the only two possibilities. And one is acceptable and one is not. That so-called righteousness of our own goodness is worse than nakedness. It's filthy rags, repulsive garment that brings only death and condemnation. Let us renounce our trust in it. Turn from the confidence that we have in anything other than Christ and put our faith in Christ. You can't muster up enough goodness to be good. Paul struggled with that, and he struggles with that in Romans 7. He says, oh, oh, I want to do good, but the evil I, want, uh, I don't want to do, I keep doing. And he says, when will I be free of this person of sin, that's, this law that's waging war against my members? Only, only sin that dwells in me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in the very next chapter, he reminds himself, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. And I'm in him and he in me. What a statement to be made or a statement to be sung. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, Jesus, and all in him is mine, alive in me, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And furthermore, Give me a hope that the grave has no hold on me. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us tell that story. Let us tell it with our lives.